that music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Hello, hello, hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You. Thank you so much for taking the next hour to spend with me as we talk about things that maybe we don't always talk about, or if we do talk about them, we dig in deeper than we normally do. Uh, so thrilled to have you. Uh, if you are listening to this live on Kixie 880 in Seattle, thanks so much for doing so. And if you know anyone who would like to listen to this episode, you can get this as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, please share that. And if you subscribe, thank you so much for leaving me a review. Uh, I really do appreciate it. You can also find out more about me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me rather easily. Would love to connect with you. Would love to hear what's on your mind. Take any questions that you have, any ideas for future shows, and the like. So welcome and really happy to have you. I want to kick off the show, as always, by thanking this show's very generous sponsor, Airway Science for Kids. You can find out more about them at airsci.org, and they are a Portland-based nonprofit that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace uh, careers. And they do amazing work down there, and so make sure you check them out at airsci.org. You'll also be hearing more about them today uh, during the breaks, as well as during today's show uh, which I will talk about in just a bit. But first, as always, let's take a run through the important things in last week's news in the segment I call What in the World is Going On? Let's kick it off. Today we are completing the liberation of Balaklia, the first major city in our offensive. I'm sure that it will not be our last. Russia's worst nightmare appears to be unfolding in eastern Ukraine. It could be their gravest setback since the failure to capture Kyiv back in March. These pictures were taken from the city of Kupiansk. Recapturing this place would deal a significant blow to Russia as it's been an important supply route to support Russian forces in Donbass. Of course, the situation in, uh, between Ukraine and Russia continues to worsen in terms of the cost in human life certainly improves from the Ukrainians' point of view as they continue to take back territory in the east and in the south of the country. And of course, sadly, and even more sadly, unsurprisingly, covering more and more evidence of Russian war crimes against Ukrainian civilians in the areas that the Russians have, uh, have evacuated. Who knows what will come of that? And certainly there are international observers recording all of that information. Who knows what will happen? Probably nothing until this war find some sort of conclusion which appears to be further and further and further uh, ahead of us, unfortunately. Uh, Ukraine has reported uh, capturing so many POWs uh, of Russian soldiers that they don't know what to do with them, and the casualties for Russia, by some estimates, have already topped 100,000 killed, wounded, or missing, which is an astronomical number. Uh, in addition, there is a growing uh, unease among some of Russia's few allies, in particular India and China, just a few days ago, India's prime minister confronted Putin to his face at a meeting uh, about, about the war and how it wasn't going the way it should go. 
And honestly, that this was, as uh, the Indian prime minister says, not an era for war. Uh, put Putin in a decidedly uncomfortable spot. In addition, increasingly uncomfortable is the, for Putin is the fact that Europe doesn't seem to be buckling under all of his threats uh, to cut off energy. And so it remains to be seen as the winter gets closer exactly how this goes. But as I've been saying since the beginning of this, uh, when it became clear Russia wasn't going to win this in any clear kind of way, the only thing that is uh, a question here is not whether Russia wins or not, but how many people are going to die on both sides needlessly before this ends. Okay, and then the second piece of news today, kind of an important moment uh, of remembrance is uh, today as well. That, of course, the national anthem of the United Kingdom, which might be hard to hear there, but has switched back to God Save the King as of today. That was recorded at the commitment ceremony earlier today for Queen Elizabeth II. It was the ceremony at Windsor Castle after the state funeral that was held at Westminster Abbey. And a big moment uh, right then because the official transference of the reign from Queen Elizabeth II to her son, King Charles III, happened just then. And it is a big moment uh, in British history. It is the passing of an era, as I talked about in my episode at length last week. And it remains to be seen uh, from this point forward as the, the period of national mourning in the UK ends today, uh, what things will be like for the British people in their relationship with the monarchy moving forward. And there's only one way to know, and that is to get up tomorrow and start the process of continuing on. Okay, so with that in mind, okay, and kind of some big stuff going on, uh, today's episode, what are we going to talk about? Well, coming up this Saturday is uh, Girls in Aviation Day, September 24th, and it is not only a national, it's an international event uh, that where organizations, groups of all kinds, whether it be uh, nonprofits, whether it be uh, museums, whether it be uh, aircraft companies, all put together a series of events geared towards bringing more young women into aviation and aerospace. And of course, this show's sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, cares about this deeply. And in fact, they're conducting an event at Pearson Airfield in Vancouver, Washington, this Saturday, beginning at 10 a.m., that is going to have a number of different activities, a number of different groups, including some big companies and some other big names that will be there to talk to uh, young women about all the opportunities that are available for them in aviation and aerospace if they choose to go in that direction. And so in order to talk about that, but then also to really engage in so many of the interesting stories that already exist of women in aviation and aerospace, I was looking to bring in a guest who might be able to not only talk about that from a passion point of view, but also from an informational and historical point of view. And so I'm really excited to uh, introduce my guest. Uh, her name is Sarah Byrne Rickman, and she's an esteemed historian of the Women's Air Force Service Pilots. And I want to make sure I give her a really clear introduction so you know that uh, just how, how much, how into this subject she really is. Sarah knew at five, the age of five, that she wanted to write books. At 13, she read about Amelia Earhart and then wanted to fly 
What followed was a 20-plus year career in journalism as a reporter and columnist for the Detroit News and later as the editor of the Centerville Bellbrook Times in Ohio. But it put her on the brink. (laughs) And add in a master's degree in creative writing, then the publication in 2001 of her book, The Originals, The Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadron of World War II. Some 12 books and 20 years later, Sarah now writes upbeat biographies about the women pilots who flew in World War II, all written for today's young women ages 11 to 15. Sarah refuses to write down to kids. Thank you so much for that. So these YA books are perfectly readable for adults. They're just a bit shorter. The originals and Wasp of the Ferry Command tell the complete story of the women who ferried aircraft for the Army during World War II. Two of her books are novels, Flight from Fear about the Wasp and Flight to Destiny about the Wafts. And she'll talk about the difference. Waifs. Excuse me. She's Wafts. Ma- Wafts. Thank you. Thank you. I knew I was going to get something wrong. Sorry. <laughs> thank you for correcting me. I people all the time. That's thank you. Three are adult biographies, Nancy Love and the Wasp Ferry Pilots of World War II, Nancy Batson Cruz, and Finding Dorothy Scott, plus the YA series bios of World War II ferry pilots B.J. Erickson, Nancy Love, Betty Gillies, Teresa James, and Jean Landis. That is quite a list of books. Uh, and so I am delighted to uh, welcome to the show for a conversation about this and wherever else we want to go, Sarah Byrne Rickman. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for being here. Hey, J.D. This is fantastic. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so excited to have uh, a historian and writer of your caliber uh, on the show to talk a little bit about this. So, you know, there's so many angles we could go, but I think the best thing, uh, best place to start would just be to talk a little bit about who were the women Air Force Service pilots. How would you summarize that for people who are just being introduced to them for the first time? Can I back up a little and introduce to you the Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadron? Sure. The WAFs, because they came first. Okay. And most people don't know that. And I will tell you later on, if we have plenty of time, how uh, the WAFs and the WASP uh, became one organization. But that's... That's a year after all of this gets started. Okay. Sounds good. So I, I'm wondering basically where to start. I think I should tell you what even got me to this in the first place. Sure. Okay. <clears throat> I am, I'm revealing my age now. I am a child of World War II. Uh, I remember the last couple of years uh, of it, you know, sure, I was pretty little, but I, I knew we were at war and I could read headlines mm-hmm. uh, and remember reading reading things and being aware. Uh, I don't remember Pearl Harbor, but I vividly remember VJ Day, August 5th, August 14th, 1945, because <clears throat> all of us kids got out our mom's pots and pans and walked up and down uh, the, uh, the, the street car, streetcar line in uh, on 6th Avenue in Denver, hollering to the, uh, to the cars, bringing people home from downtown who'd been working. Uh, so that's my most vivid memory, I, I guess I would say, of, of World War II. Okay. But it made me very cognizant. Uh, my father was a historian and he passed some of that on to me. <clears throat> so... That's kind of the background. I did. I had never heard of the WASP, which is the, the big organization that we're going to be talking about, until 1986. And that's when I was actually uh, the editor of that, that Ohio newspaper that mm-hmm. you talked about, 
uh, the Centerville Bell Brook Times. Uh, and someone came in and asked me you know, if I knew uh, about the wasp. And I said, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants? <laughs> <laughs> I got corrected. <laughs> I got corrected. <laughs> so that was the beginning. Uh, what it was, it was a museum, uh, the International Women's Air and Space Museum, now located in downtown Cleveland. But at that point in 1986, it was just starting up in the small town of Centerville, Ohio, which is suburban Dayton. Mm -hmm. Dayton is famous for the uh, Air Force Museum. And this was kind of, kind of a, a small ally to that. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've got, I spoke this morning. Too. No problem. You're in demand. It's okay. I've got a, I've got a little bit of a, of a frog. Anyway, through through that museum, I actually, when I left the paper, I went to work for that museum, uh, basically as a, more so as a volunteer. But I came up with an idea for them uh, that came out of my, out of journalism, was they were recording uh, women telling their historical aviation stories. Uh, excuse me, they were offering the, um, uh, offering the speakers, and they weren't recording them. I see. And I said, that's history mm -hmm. that needs to be recorded. Well, through my, through working for the newspaper, I knew the people at Cable Council and I went to a friend of mine over there and I told him what we had. He was a big aviation fan. He said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> so we began to do a, a series of, of shows uh, talking about the women pilots of World War II. Through that, this was the museum was sponsoring this. Through that, I met the woman who changed my life. Her name was Nancy Batson Cruz. She was one of the original WAFs, Women's Auxiliary Fairing Squadron, one of the original WAFs pilots. And talking to her, we got, we got to be pretty good friends. And I said, yeah, I'd really like to write your biography. And she said, she was from Alabama. And she said, no, Sarah, I want you to write about Nancy Love and the Wafts. Hmm. And she made it possible. I had no idea how I was going to write, write this book about these women. I had no idea how to get to them. And she said, not to worry. I'll have a reunion. <laughs> and she invited, well, actually there were nine still alive she was able to get six of them there to Birmingham Alabama where I was introduced I interviewed them uh, I videotaped my interview which now is part of a documentary that I made just about three years ago mm -hmm. but this was where the my first book the originals came from okay when I say the originals that's the WAFs Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadron now, kind of where do you want me to go from there? I mean, she changed my life, so now now we're on our way. Well, we're on our way. So let's talk a little bit about what these women were uh, were tasked to do and how they were tasked to do it, because that's yeah. that's the big part. Certainly, it's it's important to distinguish they weren't flying necessarily combat roles, but no, these these were women never. who were doing something incredibly important so that the guys who were flying combat could actually do it. So let's talk about what they actually did. Okay, the reason for these women. <clears throat> was that the army, the army air forces didn't have enough men, male pilots to go to war. Mm -hmm. 
they were desperate to get more pilots. And of course, men were enlisting, but most of them, uh, the men can start having no pilot experience whatsoever. They'll put them in an airplane, find out whether they get, get airsick and mm-hmm. can do it or not. Mm-hmm. They can't, they wash them out. They wash them out and send them to the walking army. Right. But if they pass, they can become pilots. Well, because of this, the other big need was we were just beginning to turn a lot of primary trainer military aircraft out from the factories, and they were sitting on the ground where they were built because we didn't have pilots to ferry them. Right. They had all gone to war. Right. And this is 1942 or so, right? This is 1942. Yes. That spring, a woman by the name of of Nancy Harkness Love, who was an experienced pilot, uh, married to a pilot. They had a a flight uh, fixed base operation uh, at the Boston airport. But uh, he, of course, ended up in the military. And so she was looking for something to do. She went to work for uh, the ferry in command, which was part of what he was part of, and worked with a lieutenant colonel, Bob Baker, uh, who will come back to our story in just a minute. <laughs> through Baker and through her husband, Bob, and through her own knowledge of aviation and what had been happening was that we didn't have enough pilots. So she ended up meeting, thanks to Baker and her husband, Bob, she ended up meeting Colonel William Tunner. And Colonel William Tunner changed uh, aviation for American women that day. What he did, he liked what he heard. He believed in her. <clears throat> she said, I can, I know of approximately 100 women pilots who could qualify to ferry those PT-19s. And he said, I want you to go out and, and recruit them and get them here. He founded, he formed what became the Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadron, put her in charge, and they sent telegrams out to 83 women who they thought could qualify. When the dust settled, they actually, uh, 28 had actually, Nancy and 27 others made up the original laughs. Okay, their job. Okay, well, you know what? This is a perfect spot to just pause to take a quick break because that is, I mean, we got the nice setup. Well done. Appreciate that very much. And when you come back, we'll just pick up right where we left off. So uh, for all of you. Remind me where. Oh, that's (laughs) fine. That's fine. I will. I will. That's my job. You don't worry about that. So uh, stick around, everybody, and come on back uh, with historian Sarah Byrne Rickman here on this show. is all about you. Come on back. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about 
when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show Is All About You, here with guest Sarah Byrne Rickman, historian of uh, the Women Air Force Service Pilots. But uh, we were talking about uh, the WAFs. Did I say that correct this time? I did. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. uh, all right. Sounds good. And we're talking about the origins of this program in which uh, during World War II, beginning mm-hmm. in 1942, uh, because of a shortage of male pilots who were being sent to combat zones in the Pacific and in Europe, uh, women uh, were recruited to ferry aircraft coming out of the factories, which were coming out in increasingly large numbers uh, from Fort 1942 on, to ferry these to the war zones where combat pilots could fly them. And this was not easy work, as we're about to find out, but it's one of the great stories of World War II, and it was until uh, Sarah and a few others started really talking about it, one of the unknown stories of World War II, all the way into the 80s and 90s, if not you know even more recent than that. So we left off last time, Sarah, talking about the origins of this, the you know uh, the bringing together of 28 women to originally start the WAFs, and let's just go right from there. Where does the story continue from that founding point? Okay. Well, the first thing, <clears throat> when these women reported to uh, Newcastle Army Air Base, uh, Wilmington, Delaware, uh, the first thing they had to learn was to fly the Army way. Now, these women had to have 500 hours to qualify. Most of them had way more than that. Okay. That's a big amount of hours. That's a lot, yeah. That's, but the, Nancy said the women need more hours than the men, and she stuck to it. So, but they had to learn how to fly the Army way, because unless you're in the Army Air Forces, <clears throat> you've learned civilian rules. Mm-hmm. Totally different. Got it. And the Army said, you got to fly our way or you're out. So these women had to learn exactly what that was. So they went through a 30-day orientation uh, at Newcastle, learning to fly w- with the restraint, whatever. And I'm not going to go into what they had to do. Sure. The Army said, and basically, that's the way we fly today. I will tell you that. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> anyway, they had. They, they also had le- went to ground school. They learned meteorology and all of those technical, scientific uh, things that go with flying. Uh, and then, of course, they uh, they had to pass a test to even be taken in that they could prove they could fly. So they also began flying the PT-19. PT and the thing was to take those aircraft from uh, Hagerstown, Maryland, where they were built by Fairchild Aviation. They had to be taken, first of all, to the flight training schools, which are all across the South. Mm-hmm. And that is what the original 28 WAFs did for the early months of, of their time uh, serving. Okay. You want, nope, I nope. can go on. Yep, keep going. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Don't mind yeah. me. I'm just humming and hawing over here. Okay. In the meantime, <laughs> uh, uh, a lot of you, most of you probably heard of uh, Jackie Cochran. Uh, Jackie Cochran uh, was also a woman aviator like Nancy, uh, who had Half Arnold's ear, uh, General Half Arnold, who was the uh, the head of the Army Air Forces. And Cochran, not knowing about Nancy, originally not, not knowing about Nancy's ideas, uh, wanted to start a flight training school <clears throat> for women to basically learn what the WAFs were already being taught, how to fly the Army way and to qualify so that they could 
could work. She wanted them militarized, but uh, eventually, but mm -hmm. so they they could help the army out. So she got Hap's permission. Uh, they started a flight training school down in Texas, uh, to which she recruited her first class. They entered uh, November, middle of November, 1942. And from there on, they continued to grow. There were 18 classes in all through the next year and a half. Okay. <clears throat> what this was doing was now the Army Air Forces had more potential women ferry pilots, which is what they needed. Mm -hmm. So the idea was those women, when they graduated, would go to the ferry command to ferry airplanes. Now, the first class... Uh, yeah, I can, I can keep on from there. The first class <clears throat> did not graduate until April. So between November and April, it was the, the WAFs who were still doing the ferrying. Uh, they were divided into, uh, they were at one squadron, uh, one squadron location. Now they were divided uh, into three others. So the 28 WAFs, uh, and I'll back up. There were only 25 as of the end of the year when all this started. That's that's extra detail. Anyway, five women were sent to Romulus, Michigan. Five were sent to Dallas, Texas, and five were sent to Long Beach, California. Those were three other ferrying bases mm -hmm. in, in addition to Wilmington uh, where they needed uh, planes ferried from. So those 15 WAFs were divided up, 10 stayed in Wilmington because that program was well on its way. But once these graduates came out, they came out of school, they were going to fill some of these ranks. So that is where all of, originally all of these women were headed. Not all of them ended up there because of different things we won't even get into today. But the women from the first six classes actually uh, went into uh, into ferrying, and uh, they. Uh, I'll get to that later. <laughs> uh, they began ferrying uh, the first of May, so now we've got a bigger contingent. And with each class, the number of ferry pilots uh, doubled. Okay, that's how it grew. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little side trip here. Okay, Tunner Tunner was fully aware of Nancy's abilities and believed in them. Nancy wanted to fly bigger airplanes. She checked out in the B-25 bomber. She checked out in the C-47 uh, transport, both twin engines. Mm -hmm. And her next goal, she wanted to fly Pursuit. Tunner gave her the nod. Uh, late February, <clears throat> 1943, Nancy flew a P-51. She's the first woman to fly uh, first American woman in America to fly a pursuit aircraft. And I qualify that because there were American women over in England already flying pursuit. Gotcha. She was the first domestic, and they were, they were Americans, but she was the first American woman to fly a pursuit in this country. Two weeks later, her second in command, uh, Betty Gillies, flew the P-47. Now, the P-51 is the exalted plane. It's it's number one. Oh, yeah. The P-47 was huge. It was. <laughs> the biggest airplane, uh, biggest uh, pursuit we had in, in, in the war. Betty Gillies was five, one and a half. Her husband had a pair of blocks made for her to put so that she could reach the rudders. Oh, 
that woman flew a ton of P-47s and other stuff. She had more hours than Nancy did when they, she was older. Had more had, Anyway, those they were numbers one and two of the WAFs. <clears throat> okay, moving on. After they did this, some of the other uh, WAFs uh, who were longer, more houred pilots and capable, five more of them through the summer checked out in a pursuit aircraft. So by the 1st of September, we had seven women pilots qualified in pursuit. Okay, the war is, is changing. Uh, things began to happen summer of 43 that began to tilt towards, we, we were losing. Mm -hmm. But Hap Arnold knew by fall of 43 that the worm was turning and that we were, we were on our way to winning. So strategy had to change. The need for these primary and basic trainer airplanes for teaching purposes was no longer the top need. Now the top need was pursuit aircraft that could go into combat. Mm -hmm. So General Tunner, uh, he's now General, <clears throat> General Tunner decided to set up pursuit training. And it was to start December 1st. Uh, 1943. Now, this is not made for the women. This is because there are men coming in that need to be taught to fly the P-51 uh, or all of the pursuit planes. Sure. A few could be taught on base, but this was to teach a bunch of them at a time. What happened was he said, we're sending the women who qualify to join the men. So December 1st, 43, the first class started and approximately 40 male pilots and six women pilots uh, then began to fly at pursuit school. And that produced uh, eventually most of the rest of the women pursuit pilots. I will get back to those numbers when we get there. Gotcha. In the meantime, Jacqueline Cochran, after her first class graduated, yeah, in uh, end of April of 43, she wrote to Hap Arnold and, and she said, uh, we had discussed uh, me uh, being in charge of, of this, this stuff. And, and she said, I really would like to do this job and lead, lead this group. Of course, her group's growing. Mm -hmm. By that time, she's got a couple hundred, maybe 300 women pilots um, in her. They were called the Women's Flying Training Detachment because they were learning to fly. So he bought her suggestion and brought her in as director of women pilots. She was actually put in over Nancy Love uh, to lead what became known as the WASP. Ah, and that's there we what are. Everybody knows okay. W A S P, okay. Women Air Force, one word, train uh, Women Air Force Service Pilots. So Cochran is brought in. Yes, Nancy Love is still in charge of the women ferry pilots. But Cochran is over the whole thing. Um, well, I, I can't swear, but I'll tell you what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> it's going to hit the fan. Right. Uh, actually. I was so, wondering. Okay. <laughs> yes. So we've had the first year. I call it the year of the WAFs um, from basically September to August, um, you know, 42 to 43. Now comes the year of the WASP. Uh, and her classes are growing, graduating. Uh, the we've now got 
four classes have already sent women to the ferry command and they are they are flying there well the pursuit school uh, is is indicative of what is happening again the war is changing all of our needs are changing so cochran decides that uh she needs as her as the director of women pilots that she wants to send these women coming out of her school to different different jobs let's try them uh towing targets let's try them uh no, there's several others and there's no need going into all mm -hmm. of them now towing targets was the first one and perhaps the most dangerous sure. uh, of what what they did and th those women uh some from 43 4 and some from 43 5 were sent to camp davis uh down in north carolina where they they towed gunnery targets right by the ocean so the guys down below uh who were 18 years old maybe uh are shooting at the targets they're towing and sometimes they forget and shoot at the airplanes right yeah dangerous work well, those gals came in with some lead lead in the tail anyway sure. uh this is what happens the wasp becomes the organization they are no longer wafts they're all they're all under this one umbrella so of course the more advanced wasp the uh, the women from the training school also are going to pursuit school mm-hmm so they too are entering beginning the first of december all of this is changing because the whole focus of the war now is different so as we get into 1944 each graduating class down uh, uh i still haven't i still i still am not coming up with it. i will <laughs> uh, anyway each graduating class sends four six women uh, to the ferrying, uh, to the ferrying divisions. Uh, but, uh, the rest of them, Cochrane begins to send other places where she wants them. One set was sent to fly the uh, B-26 called the Widowmaker. Yeah. And the story was the men were afraid of it yeah. because it, it was not a good, I mean, it was, it was a dangerous airplane. Yeah. And she decided, okay, if we can prove the women can do it, you know, we'll shame them into doing this. <laughs> this tactic was used in a lot of places. Yes, it was. Uh, that that was one that the wasps were involved in. So she did that. So they began going other places. Also, the ferrying division by this time, they are saying, wait a minute, you're sending us women who are not qualified for us. The women who were going in after about the first or second class only had 35 to 50 hours it was required to have 200 hours mm -hmm. to go to pursuit school right okay they even having gone to school they had not accrued enough hours to to put them at pursuit school so they began to do other things as well so this was giving more of these women other jobs to do and it helped they were able to replace a few men here a few men there a few men here the guys were then free to go overseas don't know if they were happy about it but <laughs> that was that was part of the deal mm -hmm. so now we're in 44 and that's what is happening uh women ferry pilots continue to be sent uh, uh to the uh, ferrying uh, excuse me let me back up after class six they quit sending uh sending the ferry uh they quit sending the wasp to uh, pursuit training. Okay. They flat out did not have enough hours. So 
there were no more ferry pilots uh, as as the women through the winter and spring got their hours more of these trainees from the flight school did become ferry pilots let me get back on track that's where we are eventually by the time uh the the wasper shut now which i'll tell you about later a total of 135 women had flown pursuit and were qualified okay those 15 were wafts they were the first 15 Mm -hmm. but after that, it was the WASP out of the training schools who proved their mettle. These gals were good pilots. 119 WASP also qualified. This gives you 134. There was one other gal, uh, Helen Ritchie, who was an American gal who went to England to fly for the uh, for the ATA, part of the RAF mm-hmm. uh, over there. And she was flying pursuit over there. She came home joined the joined the wasp and immediately went to betty gilly's uh squadron to fly pursuit so she made 135 we had 135 women uh, pursuit pilots flying for us okay the rest of the gals were doing all of these other jobs okay so are we go ahead yeah so so that's that's the big number that we that we finally arrive at with yes okay okay all right. Well, then, when we take Sorry. a no, this is great. I love it. This is great. It's exactly. It's a great. It's a great uh, stopping point here for a second break, because um, okay. we'll stop right here, take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk uh, a little bit about what these women were doing, what ferrying actually was, and how difficult that actually really was to do. And then let's talk a little bit as we wind up about uh, what you see as the legacy of uh, the, of these women, not just at the time, but for today's generations. All right. So stick around, everybody. Come on back. Uh, And we'll talk more with historian Sarah Byrne Rickman about women in World War II. Come on back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you on with uh, historian Sarah Byrne Rickman. We're talking about her uh, field of expertise. Uh, the women Air Force service pilots uh, who flew ferry routes for combat aircraft uh, to particularly to the European theater. But uh, but oh, she's shaking her head she's all over the place. All right. She's going to correct me right away. So 
Uh, we're, we're talking about these women pilots who ferried aircraft to combat zones. I'll just be real general. How about that? And then uh, what I want to chat about with you, Sarah, on the way is, is what this looked like. Now, these women were trained. They, they had the hours. They had the skills. Now they have to, they're ferrying these planes to these combat zones. What was that like for these women? Okay. No, they were not ferried to the combat zones. I'll have to correct you there immediately. Okay. None of our women went abroad uh, to fly. Uh, they were forbidden to do that. Uh, uh, Nancy Love and Betty Gillies uh, were were sent uh, in a, a B-17 by General Tunner. Uh, their goal was to get to England to deliver that bomber, but they were stopped. Hap Arnold found out about it and said, no women will ferry, uh, will ferry ah, across the ocean. Okay. <laughs> that was it. Period. All right. So, um, what, what these women were doing, uh, when they started ferrying, they, they basically were ferrying, uh, either primary trainers, basic trainers, advanced trainers, some twin engine. They, it was a hodgepodge. They, they ferried anything they could check out in, but these 135 actually were flying the pursuit aircraft. And that was the, that was the, the key. That was the, the one that was needed because what they did was they took those pursuit aircraft, most of them, to Newark, New Jersey, where they were loaded aboard Liberty ships or other ships that were headed for England. I think later in the war, some actually, yeah, I think they all went to England. Now, we'll stay with that. <laughs> uh, they were shipped to England because our men were, our, our, our uh, combat pilots were over there waiting for them. So uh, I did not look up. I've got the numbers somewhere, but I'm not going to be able to give them to you because I didn't look them up. But they they ferried an awful lot of those planes, yeah. mm-hmm. particularly the P-47, because it only had to be ferried 50 miles as the crow flies mm. from uh, from Long Island over to, to Newark. Um, so those gals on a, on a really good summer day without bad weather, they could ferry five planes each from uh from long island over over to newark um to say that was a good day wow but their their job uh and i'm basically going to again concentrate on those because again the the p51s particularly but also the 47s um the p38 which is a twin engine which 26 of the women flew uh these were critical for the war effort and the idea again was to get them to the docks so that they they could ship uh, um, could be shipped to England. A few few Pacific, yes. Mm-hmm. So that that was the major job. That is what what Tunner and Arnold knew needed to be done uh, as we were heading into forty four. That was that was the idea. So these women. Uh, all four of those bases had places where they had to ferry the, those planes. Long Beach was right where the P-51s uh, were made. Right. So those gals hopped in those uh, P-51s uh, in Long Beach and flew them all clear across the continent to Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> now, if they didn't have b- bad weather, they could pretty much do it in two days. Those were fast airplanes. Mm-hmm. But they got a lot of bad weather, so they got weathered in a lot. So they spent time being bored in a hotel in a hotel room, you know, while they, they couldn't fly. Mm-hmm. Um, the gals who uh, went to Romulus, Michigan, uh, mostly were ferrying um, 
the P-39s and later the P-63s from Bell Aircraft. And those were going to uh, Great Falls, Montana, uh, because they were part of our Lend-Lease to Russia. All right. So these women were, were flying from the east to the west, and they would take them to Great Falls uh, and their male pilots, they wouldn't let the women go, uh, go, go to Alaska because that meant flying across the Canadian wilderness mm. and they didn't want to risk somebody going down there. Okay. So they were taking care of the women. Uh, so the men picked them up and they took them on to Alaska and Russian pilots came to Alaska to pick them up. So that, that was the P-39, uh, the P-63 mm -hmm. um, that came from uh, uh, Eastern, uh, Western New York, Buffalo, mm -hmm. Buffalo. Okay, Dallas, they ferried a whole hodgepodge of planes at first, but uh, Dallas was, uh, the airport uh, at, at Dallas was located close to one other uh, uh, P-51 manufacturer, so they too, ferried a ton of p-51s to newark okay uh so that's those that's the four squadrons that's basically where they they went the p-51 was the prime plane that is the one that won the war and it was the it was the p-51d model mm -hmm. uh that was hot it could do anything that's what won the war for us and we didn't start getting those until into 44 right but that was that was the priority plane uh, if a woman was assigned to that, that was that was top priority, uh, and it continued through the entire war. Right. So that's basically how these women were, were were doing all these things. I haven't gone into at all what the wasps were doing where they were. It's another story mm -hmm. because uh, to me, I'm prejudiced. Uh, what these women ferry pilots did was phenomenal, and it's the best kept secret in the United States history of World War II. It wasn't until uh, I have done the most amount of writing about it, but there are other authors, that's because I've been doing this for 20 years. Right. But other authors have come along too, who are, are telling that story. But it's, uh, unless you read our books, nobody else is gonna talk about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why I wanted to, so badly to talk about that group to you. As I say, the WASP are a whole different, a different story for the mm -hmm. most part. And it, they, too, have their interesting points along the way. They're just different. Sure, sure. Well, and that's the that's the great thing about these types of things. You know, there's this perception sometimes that World War II has all been studied out, right, that everything's been talked about. And it's simply not the case. And so I really appreciate you telling this type of thing because, I mean, you corrected me, what, twice? on this? I mean, so there's still plenty of things for me to be learning, right, in all of this. Well, well thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, but but things that are, there's always more to learn about these things. Now, um, it is amazing what this overall effort looked like. So, you know, in the in the few minutes that we have left, what do you see as the lasting legacy of these women, not just from the war, but but today, and why you write about them, and why you think they're relevant for people to read about and learn about today? Okay. First of all, I told you that when uh, when uh, Colonel Tunner took on Nancy Love, he changed he changed aviation for American women. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because Nancy Love was the one who had the vision, was able to look ahead and know that women could do this. Mm -hmm. uh, she that that was her goal was to get the women trained, 
and, and as far up they could go in the ladder of the ladder uh, to do that. Uh, and frankly, what is current today in our military, uh, the, the Air Force, is <clears throat> male and women, male and female pilots are treated the same. They have the same requirements. Now, yeah, there may be hijinks and all that other crap going on, but that's not that's not that that's not the Army Air. Excuse me, the Air Force. The Air Force gives the pilot a chance. Sex doesn't matter. It's what they can do in that airplane that qualifies mm -hmm. them. Yes, there are way fewer women. Not a surprise. But what Nancy Love started, and she had the complete cooperation of General Tunner uh, and his boss. She had the backing of the men at the top of the Air Forces, except, well, no, not Arnold. He had another fish to fry. Mm -hmm. This was the Air Transport Command. Right. That's, she had their total, total commitment because they knew what she could do. Nancy Love is the reason women pilots are flying pursuit well now they're now they're jet airplanes mm -hmm. that's why those gals are flying flying jets today mm -hmm. and most of them will tell you that right the gals i know and the ones i know were in those earliest classes and they say it's because of what the wafs did nancy mm -hmm. love mm -hmm. so that's that's the biggest thing um i'm trying to think okay so what does that mean for today nearly all of those women will tell you yes it was what Nancy Love and, and the WASP did for us back then, because the WASP su totally supported these women uh, Air Force pilots. When they started coming in, who got behind them? The entire WASP, uh, those left alive, which at that point was most of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and they worked with those women. They had an organization they formed together, uh, and they became like this. Mm -hmm. So um, the WASP are, are responsible, Nancy Love, and then the whole WASP. Um, the women who are flying today, uh, thank them. That's that's probably the most important thing. There's a couple other things that are floating in my mind, but no. ask questions, maybe I can answer. That's them. okay. Yeah, it really does seem to have set the precedent, right? Because once once you show that that is possible, yes. right? oh. you, you can't pretend that it didn't happen, right? You can try, we did for a while. We tried, yeah, and there was an attempt for several decades. <laughs> yes, 36-something uh, years. Mm -hmm. uh, they buried the WASP uh, records. Mm -hmm. They finally came out uh, about the time that the women started flying in the 70s. Right. And then there were authors before me who picked up on this. Uh, and the earliest book, I think the early book came out in the late 80s, and there were, there were several more in the 90s. Mine came out early 2000, and... We've all just burgeoned sure. since, since then. Let me let me make one plug. The shirt I'm wearing, or, official WASP archive. Yep, I see it. Texas Woman's University. Okay. In that is where, other than interviewing the the WASP and WAFs themselves, that is where I've gotten most of my information. It is the most complete uh, uh, collection of WASP of WASP. Okay. They they've got everything. There's some other museums and all who have stuff. Yes, very definitely. But the WASP archive is the key, and it's been the archive since very early '90s. Okay. Uh, actually, knew the knew the WASP who helped bring that about. They were still alive when I started getting getting uh, in with them. So I wear the shirt 
uh, for them, and I wanted, wanted to show it off. Absolutely. Appreciate that. And, and once again, I think I cut you off. Where is that archive? Texas Women's University. Texas Women's University Denton, in Denton, Denton Texas. Texas. Yes. All right. So those of you who are interested out there in, in learning more, digging in, you know, being an archive rat, like I know Sarah is, like I'm, I'm trained to be, you can do that. But you can also certainly, if you want to start out with this, you can pick from the over the dozen books that uh, Sarah Byrne Rickman has written about these women over the past few years uh, and learn more about it yourself. And they can get those wherever they buy their books, Amazon, everywhere, everywhere else. Is that correct, Sarah? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Well, this is fascinating. Sarah, I could talk to you all day. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, all that time, but I'd love to have you back at some point in the future if you'd be willing to come on. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. Listen, anytime I, I can can boost my books, uh, <laughs> I, I try and do it. Can I make one more plug? Of course. Okay. Uh, Girls Aviation Day, as you mentioned, is Saturday. Mm-hmm. The last five books that I have written have been aimed at those girls. Uh, and you mentioned it earlier, yep. age 11 and 12, up to 15, in fact, higher than that. I am trying to get those books to these young girls, the STEM classes and all, because they tell the story of what these women went through back in the early 40s, which is ancient history to these gals. They probably their great great grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, could, or these could have been their great grandmothers. I used to say grandmothers, but we've moved beyond that. <laughs> But uh, it's it's for them. It's for to help them learn. And I'm going to make a big announcement. Uh, this you're you're getting it first. Number six is in progress, uh, and it's going to be a, a book about Cornelia Fort, okay. who was the woman who was flying over Pearl Harbor when the Japanese attacked, and she later died as a WAF. Uh, she later died in the war in a collision that never should have happened. Oh. Will pay. I will pay respect to Rob Simbeck, who wrote the the uh, the first big biography about Cornelia uh, back in the late '90s, because that was one of my biggest references. I've talked to Rob; he's perfectly happy with me doing the young adult uh, version. Well, that's fabulous, and you heard it here, folks. Uh, heard it here first. There's a new book coming. So, Sarah Byrne Rickman, thank you so much for your time uh, for coming on the show, and really appreciate it. We'll have you again soon. J.D., thank you. Oh, I you're, appreciate it. You're very welcome. My pleasure. And thank you to all of you out there listening on this show is all about you. Thank you uh, to Eric Ryder, my in-studio producer here at Hubbard Radio Seattle. Uh, thank you also to Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airsci.org. And be sure to check out their event September 24th, 10 a.m. at Pearson Airfield in Vancouver, Washington. Thanks also to Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks to for contributing to this episode and all that went well this week. Sarah Byrne Rickman, Julia Cannell. Tawny and Dave Santabria, Bruce Bullard, Antoinette Bernardo, Elizabeth Siskar, Stacey Heller, Bruce Flammer, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks to the Human Potential Institute for its amazing coaching certification program that I'm doing. Also thanks to all those organizations around the nation and world who are putting forward events on Girls in Aviation Day in particular. And finally to my good friend Eric Fletcher who faces so many challenges every week with good humor and grit for always keeping me humble by destroying me in fantasy football every single week. And to you listeners, thank you so much. I couldn't do this for you without you. And finally, as a way to send you off to the rest of the week, let's end with this original haiku. The blue skies belong to any and all who choose to look up and dream. Chins up, everyone. <laughs>